Today on Basic, Adam Devine. I think when people are sort of surprised when they meet us that we're not just total bumbling idiots, but, uh, you know, everything, all of our characters are based on, like, a kernel of who we are, like, the comedic essence of who we are. Like, Durst doesn't really have a stick that far up his ass. Blake isn't that much of a, a space cadet where he never knows what he's doing, and I'm not that big of a, a narcissist psychopath. I am a little bit of a narcissist psychopath, at, uh, but, you know, obviously not that much. All right, we lived in the house that we actually shot the show in. So that first season, there was no escaping it because we still lived in the house. We were like, hey, if it gets canceled, we at least got our rent paid for for a year. It was a weird way to live when you would wake up and there'd just be like men running cables outside your bedroom door and you'd walk out and you're like, t-shirt and boxer shorts to go to craft services to eat breakfast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Basic, the official podcast of the unofficial history of cable television. I'm Doug Herzog, a former TV executive, and I'm ready to get weird. And I'm Jen Cheney, TV critic for Vulture and New York Magazine, and I promise you this podcast is going to be a tight butthole. Our guest today, Jen, is one of the stars of HBO's Righteous Gemstones, and you may also know him from the Pitch Perfect movies, but he got his start on Basic Cable. He certainly did. Adam Devine was one-third of The Workaholics, Comedy Central's hilarious hit show about a trio of post-grads segueing into the workplace. And he's gone on to appear in many, many shows and movies since then, including the Pitch Perfect films, which Doug mentioned, and also a new Peacock series that is based on Adam's character from those movies called Bumper in Berlin. So let's get right to our conversation with Adam, followed by a possibly musical recap from me and Jen. All right, Adam Devine, welcome to Basic. We're going to start off with the question we ask everybody, which is, do you remember the first time you saw cable TV? Now, you probably grew up with it because you had it because you're a lot younger than us, but what do you remember about that? Yeah, I'm super youthful, Doug. <laughs> I, uh, no, I, I remember being like, we didn't grow up with any amount of money, so it was crazy that my family had cable because I remember it being like a luxury uh, when it first came out, and... Uh, but that was something my dad always just, we had to have cable no matter what. So speaking of uh, your childhood, I hope you don't mind my asking this question, but you've talked about this in other interviews that you were in a pretty rough accident when you were a kid. And you've talked about how that recovering from that kind of shaped your attitude as as a person. And maybe, I don't know, as a, as an actor, can you talk a little bit about that if you feel comfortable? Uh, yeah, totally. I, um, yeah, I was hit by a cement truck. It sounds like a fake story. It sounds like an origin story that like someone <laughs> that when they're moving to Hollywood, you're like, I have to come with with a tall tale so people will take me seriously. But no, for real, I was I was hit by a 32 ton cement truck uh, when I was 11 years old and it broke every bone in my body from the waist down except my right femur. So everything else was uh, shattered and then they fully had to rebuild me. Which now, like, I understand when, like, old, you know how, like, when old men will be like, oh, the weather, weather's, there must be a storm coming, my knee's acting up or whatever. Now, my whole body's like that. <laughs> so when a storm's coming, I'm like, it's coming! It's coming! <laughs> so I, uh, yeah, I was hit by this, the truck as a kid. And then that, that like, to your point, uh, or to your question, rather, it really it kind of pushed me into comedy and wanting to be an actor because I always liked that stuff. But at 11, you don't really know. I was, I was like, I'm either going to be an astronaut 
horrible at science or professional <laughs> baseball player. Not very good at that either. So I'm glad that uh, the cement truck pushed me into comedy because I'm, I'm definitely, my skill sets are, are much sharper there. I mean, did they expect you to be able to recover to the full extent that you, you obviously were? You know, I think uh, doctors are, uh, are born liars. So <laughs> I think that they, <laughs> they kept telling us that, oh, no, we think it'll, he'll come back. But, we, you know, they didn't really know, I don't think. And they were telling my parents different things than they were telling me. I only got the mm-hmm. positive stuff. And my parents got a lot of – there was a point that they thought I was going to lose both legs. And I'd be in a wheelchair or get fake legs. And then it was one leg and then it was my right foot. And then it was, it seems like we'll be able to keep both legs. Mm. And, and yeah, so obviously that was pretty traumatic for my parents, but as a kid, I I think I was just, you take everything in stride because you don't know any better. So I was like, okay, this is just my life now. And I got deep into, I watched so much TV. I watched so many like just just bad movies and good movies all movies and really got into writing i would sit in my wheelchair and just write possible bits in for possible situations i didn't know what i was writing for but it would be like if someone made fun of me i just had like bits ready to go retorts ready to throw back in their face and then i ended up calling the radio station and doing different bits from my my hospital bed and from my wheelchair wow. and I'd call in every day to the point that I became like a little fixture on the afternoon drive time hour. And <laughs> they invited me. They're like, Hey, you know what? You're always calling in, doing all these different characters. We'll make you part of the show. Come down here. Uh, and you could call in every day and you'll get paid. It'll be like a, a, a job for you. But they didn't know I was at this point. I think I was, it was a couple of years afterwards and in, in my healing process. And I was like, 13 or 14 and I showed up and I was in a wheelchair and my legs were completely straight out because my knees couldn't bend at that point and my mom wheels me into the um the radio station and they were like oh we didn't know you were a crippled child we thought you were <laughs> we thought you were an adult person because I only talked to them like within character because I was afraid right, if right. they heard my normal voice they wouldn't let me do it anymore and so it actually worked out because they ended up giving me like so many, they, they're like, well, we can't pay you, but we could pay you in CDs and we could pay you in concert tickets. And at 13 or 14, that's way cooler than having money in your pocket anyways. So. Right. Wow. That's wow. incredible. That is an incredible yeah. story. That is an incredible story. And then, yeah, so if you need any uh, wallflower CDs or uh, cranberry <laughs> CDs, I, I have those ready to go. Some Jim Blossoms in there. Uh, yeah. I already have them myself, but thank you. Um, <laughs> Uh, I'm sitting in my CD closet, actually, as it turns out. Uh, yeah, look at um, that. Yeah, sure. Uh, and then you yeah, old school. Uh, so then you uh, you headed out to school in California, and was that with the idea that you wanted to sort of head out west and get into showbiz? Was that the idea? Yeah. When you say it like that, it sounds absolutely insane, Doug. But that was the idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm heading out west and getting into showbiz. Uh, but no, that was that was the plan. And I, I moved out with my good friend Austin Anderson, and he was he wanted to get into stand up, and I wanted to do kind of everything. I was like, I'll, I'll do stand up, I'll do sketch, I'll, I want to act. I just kind of wanted to do it all. And we moved to Orange County, California, and with the goal of 
I was going to transfer to UCLA after I got my residency and and uh, got some community college credits under my belt, and then just took two years of creative writing and improv classes, and uh, had no transferable credits after those two years. So they were like, <laughs> I had like four transferable credits. They were like, you can't go to UCLA with just taking creative writing and improv classes. But it was it was the smartest decision I ever made because I met Blake Anderson and Kyle Newichek day one of my community college, Orange Coast Community College improv class. And obviously I went on to uh, create, not obviously, but I went on to create workaholics with those guys. And it was just, whenever I, whenever like young people ask me for advice and like, well, you just went to a community college. Maybe I don't go to college. I'm like, sure. I mean, it's, you don't, you don't have to nowadays, but I I met so many like-minded people there and it it sort of fed my creativity and without going to community college and meeting um those two guys I I don't know where my career would be right now or if I would even have one. Yeah, talk about I mean, you said you met them on day 1. What sort of drew you to each other? I I assume a similar comic sensibility obviously. Well, community college is hilarious because there's obviously a lot of people that are your age, like just went from high school. But then there's people that are like in their 60s that are like, I just wanted to take a an improv class. And then there's just some moms that are like, this will be fun. So it was like <laughs> a real hilarious mix of people. And Blake was just he had this tight little afro. He like is known as like a cool guy now because he's got cool guy hair and he wears tight <laughs> pants. Uh, but... <laughs> But he just had – he just looked like such a little dork but had this tight, cute-ass little afro, and he was just so funny and so sharp. And I've always been one to be like, I got to find – I got to surround myself with people that are better than me so they'll rub off on me and I'll get better from doing that. And that was sort of the thinking with Blake. And then Kyle was Blake's – one of Blake's very best friends, and we sort of had a video off where we showed each other like we both made like funny videos in high school and we went over to their house later that night after like the first day and we had a little uh video off and I saw that their production was so much better than our production because Kyle Newichek directed all of their stuff and he went on to you know do a lot of really great stuff in the directing space so I I was like what if we join forces and this was before YouTube when did uh and then when did uh Anders, or as he's known, Durs, enter the scene. The Durs effect came into the scene. Uh, <laughs> Anders, who's our fourth member of the group, who we also created Workaholics with, uh, who really is our is the sort of brain trust of Workaholics. He was the one that had written anything besides sketches. He wrote a bunch of specs, and he he was the one that actually was putting fingers to keyboard and and punching scripts out. So we met him when I moved up, me and Kyle moved up to Cal uh, to Los Angeles from Orange County when I was like, you know what, I'm just going to go full steam ahead. I can't transfer to UCLA. That was a pipe dream. I'm just going to go and give it a shot, try to get a commercial agent, try to get a regular agent, try to see what I can do. And we moved up together and I started to take classes at the Second City, which is a, an improv school. And it's it's known for being in Chicago, but they have outposts all over. And so I went to the LA outpost and I, I got a job working the door of the Hollywood improv. So oh, at that time that they were right next door to each other. And if you worked at the improv, you got half off classes 
So that was an, that was an easy, my parents were bummed that I couldn't go to college, but I told them that my improv training will be way less expensive than me going to college. And they were, they were on board for that. So <laughs> I met him. Um, it was, he was in a different class, but he couldn't make his class. So he came into mine and then liked our class so much better. And with me in it that he transferred over to mine. And I remember Kyle and I had a, a female roommate and we didn't know each other that well. And she saw my car had broken down and she had to come pick me up. And she saw me stand on the corner. She thought I was flirting with theirs. Um, and essentially, I kind of was, but, but it was a talent <laughs> flirt right. where I'm like, I think you're really funny. Uh, I would love to write with you. And he was like, yeah, no, for sure. I would love to also write with you. You're very funny. And, you know, it's like this weird, weird bro off. And so she, essentially, she thought I was gay for like two months after that, where she was like, She's like, no, I saw you flirting with that guy after. And I'm like, that's a friend of mine. That's a. <laughs> that's so, that's so funny. A, prof- a professional, a professional flirt. Yeah. It was a professional flirt off. You guys were on the corner falling in love with each other. Yeah, we really were. <laughs> and he would, Durs was one of the first people that he truly knew his comedic, I guess, brand for lack right. of a better uh, term before anyone else did before any of us really did we're still trying to find ourselves and w- what we can bring to the table and what we think is the funniest and how we can be the funniest but he knew exactly he goes he hand me a uh a Jamie Fox DVD that was like welcome to the foxhole or something like that and then American Psycho <laughs> the book and he goes these two things combined that's who I am <laughs> that's pretty good yeah that's yeah, cool. and I'm like, yeah that and and after knowing Durs for years and years now like 20 years later i'm like yeah he was right on the money with wow with like a, a goofy psychopath <laughs> <laughs> hello pantheon podcast listeners christian swain here to tell you more about my experience with raycon earbuds Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. 
Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. And then you you guys kind of started your own sketch troupe, right? Yeah, it was it was kind of on the early days of YouTube and we started to make videos all together, me, Blake, Anders, and Kyle, and some other friends of ours. And we called ourselves mail order comedy. And we started just putting out a ton of stuff, but we didn't know we were just sort of sending QuickTime files. And then YouTube came around. Someone showed us YouTube. And then we just started pushing stuff there. And we ended up doing 70 or 80 videos in the course of like two years. Mm -hmm. So we were just sort of churning stuff out and at that same time, I was doing stand-up, and I got uh, live at Gotham, which was Comedy Central stand-up showcase right. for mm-hmm. up-and-coming stand-ups. And I got booked on that, and so we were sort of in the – Was that John Oliver? No, that wasn't John Oliver. John Oliver had, like, the John had, Oliver – Oh, he had another one, right? right yeah, right. he had that another one, else, yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I did live at Gotham, and then from then on, we were sort of on the Comedy Central radar, and then two executives – Seth Cohen and Walter, Walter Newman. Yeah, they they Walter f- Newman who went on to a, a great career adult swim. Yeah, that's right. Walter brought us in and we we had made a, a group of videos called The 50 Year which essentially was sort of workaholics e of us in an office and to their credit they they knew that this was a show and we had just come out with a concept album of us as gangster rapping wizards from <laughs> another realm. And we were like, no, but we think this is the show. And they're like, that's definitely not the show. The show's you guys living together and working together. That's the show. And we're like, eh, agree to disagree. Uh, it's us as these wizards. But to their their credit, they they knew what they were doing. I mean, did you initially think it was going to be more of like a sketch type of show? Or did you see it as, you know, ongoing storytelling? Yeah, I mean, that was a real conversation that we had uh, internally as a group of like, whether we wanted it to be a sketch, but we just saw more longevity as, as a a sitcom, but Mm -hmm. it was, it was a, a real steep learning curve for Blake, Kyle and myself, because we never had written a sitcom before. Durs would give us homework where he would give us books that said like how to write for TV. And we'd go home at night and read books on how to write for television. And then the next morning be like, okay, so we feel there should be an exciting incident, uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and meanwhile, we had all these like smart Harvard writers that were working for us who were like, "Okay, good, yes, very good." <laughs> that was a that's a tremendous transition for all you guys to step, you know, from like your, you know, 
a notch above being in your dorm rooms to just kind of making things and putting them on, you know, the very earliest days of YouTube and, and MySpace. And now you have a Comedy Central show with a budget and writers and a staff and you have to kind of figure the whole thing out. Was there like a moment like where you guys all looked at each other and go, are we, can we do this? I mean, there was never the could, can we do this? I think we all were delusional in in the same way that we were all delusional and going, I'm going to move out west and break it into showbiz. You know, it, it just was like, we can do it. And we thought we could, but it, it was, there was a lot of pinch me moments. And especially that first season when I remember that when we wrapped season one, I laid in the grass of the front yard of the house and I just like cried. I was so happy. I was like, and I've never, you know, I'm not one to have happy cries ever. Uh, I'm a sad crier normally, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I was just so relieved and happy that we, I felt like we pulled it off. And in a real way, I was so proud of that. Well, of all the seasons, but especially that first season when I felt like we pulled the rabbit out of the hat and actually pulled off something pretty incredible. Well, you did. And, and we, we worked, or we lived in the house that we actually shot That's the right. show in. I remember so that, that first season, there was no escaping it because we still <laughs> lived in the house. We were like, hey, if it gets canceled, we at least got our rent paid for for a year, you know? Right. And so we all just kept living in the house. So it was a weird way to live when you would wake up and there'd just be like men running cables outside your bedroom door or they would slip your sides underneath your bedroom door and you'd walk out and you're like t-shirt and boxer shorts to go to craft services to eat breakfast uh it was it was definitely a weird way you, you were but you guys were like almost you, know, you were trendsetters that was like pre-pandemic is like you know you were you were doing it all from home <laughs> yeah that's right we look at you look at you guys yeah yeah we were we were big preppers yeah. so uh <laughs> so we were ready for this pandemic when it hit so that that actually uh segues into what something i wanted to ask you which is you know like you said you're living in the house you're playing characters that have your same names, like how much of what you were bringing to the show was coming from your own experiences? You know, quite a lot. Uh, I think, I think when people are sort of surprised when they meet us that we're not just total bumbling idiots, but <laughs> uh, you know, everything, all of our characters are based on like a kernel of who we are, like the comedic essence of who we are. Like Durs doesn't really have a stick that far up his ass. Blake <laughs> isn't that much of a, a space cadet where he never knows what he's doing. And I'm not that big of a, a narcissist psychopath. I am a little bit of a narcissist psychopath, uh, but, you know, obviously not that much. So uh, it, everything was just heightened to 100. But, yeah, that, that those first few seasons was, were really fun finding those characters and then and then uh, keeping that train moving. Is there uh, do you have a favorite episode? We had um, Mark Summers uh, from Double Dare uh, has, oh, been sure. a, has been a guest of the pod, as we like to awesome. say. But uh, and he, of course, famously appeared on Workaholics. But uh, I know that's his favorite episode. But, uh, <laughs> but, weirdly but, enough, that's, weirdly that's enough, who, who would have thunk? Um, you have a favorite episode or something that sticks out as uh, God can't believe we were able to do that. Yeah, it's the first couple seasons. That I, I just think I think uh, huh, I think the episode where we go and, and we take mushrooms and I, I think it's called Office Campout, right? And that's one of the first. I think that's the third or fourth episode of the first season, and th that's where we did something stylistically that was a little different, right? That where it would, 
didn't just feel like an office comedy. And that's where I was, the show really clicked into place for me where I'm like, oh, we can turn a regular office comedy and put it on its head a little bit. Right. And, to, and to remind viewers, that's the episode where you guys all take mushrooms. You decide to spend the night at the office alone, right? Just three, the three yeah, we're going to camp and you're, all, and you're all tripping at the office overnight. Yeah, we're yeah. we're tripping balls at the office. <laughs> and then we're convinced that the office is under attack and we must protect the office. And then the twist at the end is that these are just the IT guys working at night trying to get <laughs> stuff done. And then, and then in our our uh, high minds, we think that it's it's fully under attack. And that was actually the genesis, uh, the little kernel of the idea for our movie Game Over Man, because we had so much fun acting like we were under attack that we decided to write a whole dang movie about it. Hmm. So I want to ask the flip side of the question that Doug just asked, which is, were there any uh, jokes or storylines that you really wanted to get on the air, but for whatever reason just never made it? Yeah, I mean, there was a, a handful uh, that I'm glad didn't make the air uh, just with <laughs> because, you know, now you, just, st- now you still have a career. Yeah, no, I'm like, oh, that's a, that's it would be a cancelable offense now. Uh, didn't even think of it like that back then. But, you know, we did seven seasons and there and I felt we could have kept going and going, but we, we felt it was a good time to, to put it to bed just uh, career wise for each each of us. But there was. I mean, yeah, there was a, definitely a handful of things that we thought we we could have kept, kept the show going with with different uh, storylines, but nothing in particular that I was dying to do. I feel like we did everything that we were super, super excited. I actually don't remember from the Comedy Central standpoint there being too much of a we were always pretty much I felt like we were always pretty much in sync with the workaholics and what they wanted to do and how they did it. And yeah, yeah, you guys were there weren't a lot of battles or fights over over jokes or content. At least no, I can remember. I, I wasn't on the front lines, but I don't remember much of that. No, there really wasn't. And it was, we, when people were like, how did you get away with that? We were like, it's because we're on Comedy Central. Like they, you guys really let us do whatever we, you guys trusted in us to do what we wanted to do. And I think that uh, goes to show like during that time period of Comedy Central, why it, that that was such a good run for Comedy Central. It was us and Kroll show Amy and Schumer and Amy Schumer. And then a little bit later it was broad city. Right. And, Tosh and Tosh. Yeah. So there was a, a lot of good things on the network at that time. And then, but, you know, we look, we, we, we gave people a lot of room and it was a different era. Um, and, but things have changed since then. I'm not sure, uh, you know, that people can do the kinds of shows they were doing, uh, you know, back in the, in the mid two thousands, we're writing the workaholics movie right now, actually, and oh. with the, oh. with the hope of shooting it in the spring and we are running up to, I mean, Paramount it's Paramount plus, uh, and they're being very good to us, but we have run into a few things that we were like, Oh, we would never get this note, uh, eight years ago, you know, right. doing or 10 years ago doing workaholics, but you, you see it now you're like, Oh, you can't, uh, you can't say those things anymore. We're like, right. yeah, but we're idiots. That's why we're doing the joke. The running bit is just, I mean, whatever, I'll spoil it. It's <laughs> is that we're we're we all got the vax, but then now absolutely anything that happens to us, we blame it on the vax. We're oh, like, I, you know, it's probably it's that. probably the vax. You know, I <laughs> I used to be an athlete before the vax, and then I get the vax and I can't make that jump. I don't know. I don't know. You know, and they're like, so are these guys anti-vaxxers? And we're like, 
no, these guys are just idiots. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> like, by the way, right. by the way, they're still idiots eight years later. Right? Yeah, right. nothing's changed. Yeah, once a dummy, always a dummy. Dummy. If they were anti-vaxxers, they wouldn't have gotten it, right? I mean, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I mean, in a similar vein, I guess. Like, this is an issue that I feel like a lot of comedies from that same era have come up against, where there was a lot of comedy in the in the two thousands, where you know you were making fun of the people for being dumb, but if you didn't pick up on the nuance of the joke, then some people would just take it at face value. Like 30 Rock had a lot of instances of that. The Office certainly did. And some of those, you know, more sensitive episodes have been pulled off of streaming. And you guys even had an episode pulled off because of, of uh, Chris Delia, the, the Predator episode from season one, yeah. which is an episode that I see a, on every list of one of the best episodes of, of Workaholics. So I'm just wondering, like, how do you feel about that when your stuff has to be pulled because it's you know I, I understand the reason for doing it but it's also kind of a shame you can't watch the episode anymore i mean i do it, it, it yeah it's that's why you gotta buy the dvds guys go out and buy the dvd <laughs> <laughs> i think i get half of a nickel every time uh two hundred thousand dvds are sold uh but yeah i, I you know it is frustrating that because our show is definitely like that where we are poking fun at that culture at like the bro-y type culture right even though we are sort of in it ourselves but we at least are far enough outside of it that we can make fun of it but it Mm -hmm. is you you meet some people that come up to you and they totally get what you're doing and they understand the satire uh and then other people that are that come up like holy shit bro oh my god that episode and you're like you don't really get it do you (laughs) (laughs) yeah um, you always run that risk, right? I mean, it's, it's, as a, as it's a dying comedy. art form right now. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's hard. Well, the workaholics clearly got you out there in front of a large audience and all of a sudden you were everywhere, right? You were doing Modern Family, you're doing Arrested Development, and then of course Pitch Perfect. So talk a little bit about how, you know, your well, tell us a little bit about Pitch Perfect, which, you know, is obviously a huge franchise and something you're closely associated with. Yeah, I mean, it's so I'm so associated with it that I'm doing a spin-off show about yeah. my character from Pitch Perfect for Peacock. I, I just filmed it. It comes out uh, around Thanksgiving. So Bumper in Berlin, check it out. Uh, yeah, it, it, that was one of the things I never would have. You just sort of put yourself out there and hope for the best. And And I was very fortunate that at the very beginning of my career, I had Workaholics, Modern Family, and Pitch Perfect as the three things that I did kind of out the gate because that really set me up for success. But Pitch Perfect, I did not I, – I read the script. I thought it was very funny. They had me come in and audition. But it was during a lunch break from Workaholics, so I didn't have a lot of time. And I didn't even want to go to the audition. I was telling them, hey, look, I, this is what's most important to me. Workaholics being good is what's most important to me. I don't want to just half-ass do an audition just to say I did it. And they're like, please, the producers like you, go in to do it. And so I went there, not really looking at the sides, just seeing it says Pitch Perfect. I think it's a baseball movie. I get there, I see all these people <laughs> sing. Like, truthfully, I see all these people, like, singing and, like, it, like practicing. All this, like, good-looking. Hollywood's a weird place because you'll show up somewhere and there's just a lot of people that kind of look like the better-looking version of you. 
Uh, and that's what I walked in on, like all these people that just look like the better looking version of me singing. I'm like, that's not going to help you with the baseball movie, pussy, you know. And uh, <laughs> and then I looked at the sides. Obviously, it wasn't a baseball movie, but I didn't prepare a song even a little bit. I had no idea. I should have read the email, Doug. Uh, <laughs> but but I, I went in and the one song that I they're like, just sing a song from your childhood, something that, you know, so we can tell that you can carry a tune. And the one song that I just, for whatever reason, had at the ready to go was um, the Full House theme song, or maybe the Family Matters. I think it's Full House, where it's uh, whatever happened to predictability. <laughs> oh man, the paper boy, the evening TV. Uh, and I mean, I don't know why I was hired, honestly, because I, I sing... think you just illustrated very yeah. well why you were hired. <laughs> well, they, you know, like I sing like Rihanna and pop songs in the movie. Not, I'm not like a 80 year old black jazz singer, uh, <laughs> but but uh, here we are. So so wait, so tell us a little bit about uh, tell the audience a little about Bumper in Berlin. Yeah, so it was it was a uh, it was during the middle of the pandemic. And trying to figure out what I'm going to do uh, once this thing lifts. And I get a call from Elizabeth Banks and her husband and producing partner, Max Handelman. And they're producing, they were the producers on the first Pitch Perfect movie. They call me up and were like, hey, would you ever think about doing a spinoff show? And I was like, nah, I don't know. And then they, they're like, well, she said she was watching Loki. And was like how funny that was to do a spinoff of the villain of of the Marvel universe. And she was like, we think it'd be funny to do a spinoff of the villain of the Pitch Perfect universe, and that's me. And I'm like, hilarious. <laughs> so essentially, my character, he's still at Barden University. He's working as a security guard. He has a pretty sad, pathetic life. And uh, he gets a call from Flula Borg, who in the second movie was the leader of Das Sound Machine, the German group that that uh, that we sort of battle. And then he says that I have a TikTok that has gone viral in Germany and that I have to move over there and that he will be my manager and I'll become a star. And I have nothing. Like David Hasselhoff. Exactly like David Hasselhoff. <laughs> and so I moved to, I'm taking, I'm ripping all the pages out of David Hasselhoff's playbook, Doug. Uh, and then I moved there and then it's, I'm not really, it's not as viral as I thought it was going to be. Now I don't have, I spent all my money on the plane ticket over here. Now I don't have money to get back. And I'm kind of stuck in Berlin trying to make a, a name for myself out there. It's a really, really funny show. I, I love it. It's, it's, it's part of the, part of the, you know, as they, I think they refer to it, the PPU. Yeah, it's the PPU. The Pitch Perfect, Perfect Universe. That's right. I would I would imagine when you went in for that Pitch Perfect audition and maybe even when you were shooting the first movie, you did not think to yourself franchise. But no. it is. <laughs> I really did. I remember reading the script and, you know, I was hesitant because Workaholics was considered like a cool show. It had like cool street cred. You know, Pitch Perfect definitely on paper didn't seem like the coolest thing to do. It's about a group of like corny acapella singers. And, you know, it, it was very funny. Kay Cannon wrote it and she was one of the uh, main writers for 30 Rock and she's super right. funny woman. And... I just I really liked the script and I gave it to my guys. I gave it to Anders and Blake as sort of like, hey, would you mind reading this? Tell me if I what you think about it. And Durs was like, dude, I think you would be very funny in this role. I think, yeah, do it. Hell yeah. 
And then Blake was like, yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we were working late that night and he comes into my office and he goes, dude, you can't do this. You cannot do this movie. And I'm like, what? And he goes, it will ruin everything. Don't do it. <laughs> oh my Please gosh. don't do it. And I, now I'm you, like, have the weight of like, you're going to destroy the brand. I'm going to destroy yeah, <laughs> the workaholics. If I do this, um, but then I just told him to uh, F off and I did it anyways. Ha <laughs> ha, sucker. Uh, <laughs> I'm curious, um, you know, as we're talking about Pitch Perfect, obviously that's just one of many examples of shows that are being made that are, you know, inspired by or based on existing movies or or older TV shows. Given that, do you think it would be possible to even, if you were to go out and try to pitch Workaholics now as an unknown commodity, do you think it would get picked up or would it be harder than it was when you guys actually did it? I think if, yeah, I don't know if it would get picked up nowadays with just three unknown white guys. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if it would, uh, mm -hmm. you know, to be perfectly honest, I think we, it was just the, we were kind of the last show of its kind um, really. And I, I don't know if that, that show would get made now. Mm -hmm. Now, that being said, we were very lucky that we got in right before the door uh, slammed in, in our faces and, uh, and now we're we're on the inside, so we can we can do it again. So thank yeah. thank God. I, I'd like to think that you know if and I, again I don't run any of these places anymore, but you know funny is funny, and hopefully you know something comes and it's hard enough to find something funny, particularly these days. Um, yeah, and if something funny comes through the door, you figure out a way to make it. But like I said, I'm not uh, I'm not making those uh, those decisions anymore. Yeah, I mean, dang, dog, I, get I, back I, in there. Yeah, really. <laughs> uh, you know, I'd like to think that too. I just, everything I keep hearing from people is that it's really hard to pitch original stuff um, more hard than it. Right. Forget about whether it's funny or not. Just, just if it doesn't yeah, have just any kind of an original idea, if because, it doesn't have any sort of marquee IP value. Right? Yeah. I think it's, yeah. it's my impression from just talking to different writers and people in the business that that's it's well, more challenging. Just breaking in. And I like, I don't even know, I guess I do know you would need to do tiktok videos and right. you need to like do characters and stuff in in that world um but I, i'm just very fortunate that when we sort of came up we were doing internet videos but we were actively trying to tell little stories within right. those videos right. and it wasn't right. just like you know girls be walking like this right and then they do a funny walk <laughs> <laughs> you know but, the, uh, but, but, yeah, but that's right. You got right. The, the, this generation, like you were discovered, you know, on MySpace and YouTube, this generation is being discovered on Instagram and TikTok. And, yeah, and they're, and they're right. doing it in much shorter, you know, versions and not really telling stories. Uh, but but uh, I also think the difference is that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Adam, by all means, but like back then, I don't think people thought that, oh, if I put this on the internet, I'm going to become a star. Like it was still something that was a new concept. So you were making things that you enjoyed. We were just excited that people were watching it. Like just, right. we would like literally refresh and look at view counts and it wasn't, we, it was not viral even a little bit, but like the fact that you'd be like, oh my God, 38 people have watched it since we <laughs> uploaded it. Now it's 106. Oh my gosh. It's going through the roof. Right. But that, <laughs> that, that, that is right, Jen. The, the, the expectations of the generation on TikTok is they're going to be famous and that's why they're there. Whereas Adam and the guys were probably just trying to get somebody to notice them and mm -hmm. make stuff. And or just see make if, stuff they like. Yeah, say, make stuff they like and see if it floated, right? right? And see if they get anybody's attention. So yeah, different. I think that's a good point. I think that's a really good point. Yeah, I think it's just generationally, it was never any of our goals wasn't like to be famous 
You know, the fame was a byproduct of getting to be actors and getting to be comedians uh, and getting good at the skill set. And then fame was like another sort of a perk, sort of a hassle that came with being good at something. Right. right. And now I think with with the rise of like reality television stars and like YouTube stars where the, they're famous for opening presents you know, or just, <laughs> you know, what, whatever thing that they do, I think mm-hmm. it's a, it's a little bit different of a thing. And it's, it's people want, uh, the, the goal is to get famous, not necessarily to be great at storytelling or, right. or comedy. Right. We have to ask you our, our traditional last question of the podcast, which is right. aside from shows that you have been in, what is your favorite basic cable TV show of all time? <sighs> of all time, basic. You know, I think weirdly, I don't watch a lot of comedy and I never, I, 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 I did a lot more when I was younger, I think, because it's what I wanted to do. But now that I do it and it is my life and my job, I watch so much less of it. And it's almost embarrassing how people would be like, have you seen that? I'm like, mm, <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, so I think. The Shield might be right oh, up there oh. for me. I loved – I just thought it was so good. And Walton Goggins is on Righteous Gemstones with me now. And I, I'm sure I bother him by how much I talk to him about The Shield. He's like, yeah, yeah, that show I did 20 years ago. I've done other things. You can ask me about that. But I'm like, <laughs> what was it like? Was Vic Mackey really scary? Um, <laughs> that's, a, that's, just, a, that's, a, that's a great choice. And that's a cho- you know that's one that hasn't come up yet. But The Shield was really – the very first, I think, sort of premium drama on cable. Very dark, right? Very and violent and edgy. But that was, you know, that was... I- and just how they left you, they they, they used the, the medium so well where every act out to go into commercial break was the most intense thing. You it, Like, you're on the edge of your seat and then it's a commercial break. And then you have to wait all commercial long until it jumps you back into the the scene and just having that built in uh like nowadays that you don't really have that because there's no commercials right so it, it, that was an art it, it was an art form to really nail nail uh the the out for the commercial break and and they did it better than anyone it had that moment like game of thrones where they kicked the kid you know out uh, when he's outside the castle window and that, mm-hmm. i think in the first episode of of uh the shield, I think he comes in and he puts some guy's face onto a burner on the stove. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this is going to be different. <laughs> I was like, uh-oh, my new favorite show. <laughs> I, I remember uh, Kyle and I got all the DVDs because I think he hadn't – I hadn't seen all of it because it used to be, you know, I mean, you guys know, you'd miss some episodes and then you just kind of missed it unless you saw reruns, you right. know. So, so we got all the DVDs and – it was right after I had quit my job working at the improv uh, because I'm going to do comedy full time and I can't have a regular job anymore, which just meant I sat at my house until I went to go do <laughs> stand up at night. Uh, so Kyle and I, we would act, we would say we're going to work and we would clock in at 10 a.m. Uh, and just watch eight hours of uh, of The Shield <laughs> until I had to go do stand up at night. <laughs> 
Well, I'm, I'm a TV critic for a living, so you've just described my job. <laughs> <laughs> hey, cool, cool job. Well, then you have, you have to pick up a pen and then write about it. Or, yeah, I do. Or, yeah. or well, go, to your, go to your keyboard. Yeah, keyboard. <laughs> I right. use a quill and I write my pieces. Ah. <laughs> a skywriter. Let, let the whole city know. Yeah. yeah. Well, Adam, it was great to see you. We really appreciate you coming on. We're looking forward to Bumper in Berlin. And uh, it, was, uh, it was a pleasure uh, having you. Thanks so much. Thank you yeah, guys thank so, you so much. much. Great to see you. Okay, so Adam Devine, I thought he was really great guest and always, you know, funny and personable. But wow, that story about what happened to him as a kid is, is really kind of incredible and, and, and incredible to think anybody could overcome that. Yeah. I mean, I, until we started doing research for this podcast, I did not know that story about him getting hit by that cement truck. And he's, he's right that it does sound fake, but like incredible that he could recover from that because it sounds like it took a few years to, to do that. And that it sort of kind of gave birth to his comedic mind. It sounds like just from writing sketches. And like he said, calling into the radio station, which I love that. Yeah. I love that he was just doing voices. It's hilarious. And and that's it's really inspiring, you know. Like there's it really a, there's... is. It's it's a lot to overcome. But you know, it's funny. He's he's a very upbeat guy, and mm-hmm. I mean that's clearly part of what got him through what he was going through. And I, to do it at such a young age, I mean, oh, I can't even imagine, honestly. Yeah, but you know, there's a lot of people who who get into adverse situations like that, and maybe aren't able for good reason to, to use it to kind of discover a new side of themselves. So the fact that he was able to do that and it's ended up being what his whole kind of life and career is about is incredible to me. Yeah. And I, 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 I do love the workaholic story. I mean, it's got a great arc, you know, with starting these guys just kind of getting together post-college, you know, as you pointed out, you know, there's a lot of similarities between their real life and what they were doing on the show and, and just throwing stuff up onto YouTube and, and MySpace in the early days and finding their way to the Comedy Central offices. And all of a sudden somebody gives them a TV show and, and they figure it out. Mm-hmm. Do you think that kind of thing would happen today? I know I asked him that question more from a, like, would somebody want to take an original show, but just to have these guys who really, as he said, had no experience for the most part writing TV and were like going home at night and reading a how to write TV book and then coming right. in the next That's day. That's hilarious, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think, and because I'm not in these, these conversations, these, these offices anymore, but, you know, we talked about it a little bit in, in, with Adam in the podcast, but I think you would find somebody on TikTok mm-hmm. and it might be a little less about what they're doing, but how popular it is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and how many likes or followers or, you know, whatever it is they measure, you know, those things by, I think that, I think that holds a lot of weight out there. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's a different, it's a, it's a different landscape. And look, I think he, I, I think the, the world has changed, the landscape's changed and the way people are buying shows has changed. And so I think your question about whether or not could workaholic sell today is a really good one. And I, I, I'm not sure the answer I said during the podcast, I think funny is funny, but there's a lot of other things at play today. So. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, you know, somebody that's, let's say an influencer who is really popular on TikTok and, and somebody comes to them and says, Hey, we should make a show around you. I feel like a lot of those kinds of shows would be more reality show type of things. Right. That's right. And you know, the kinds of people that are doing things online and then going on to, make full-fledged shows, somebody like Issa Rae with Insecure, for example, where what she was making is kind of like what Adam was talking about. Her Insecure was initially like little web episodes, but they were telling a story. And I just right. feel like it is important to 
be able to see that capacity, which I think those guys probably had, even though they hadn't worked in a, you know, television environment before. No, but but they did have something crazy organic, right? They were literally living in that house. They were living together. They were all friends. They all clearly had talent to act, to write, a sense of what their character should be. Um, a guy who was part of the team who could direct it and, mm-hmm. and, and, bring, and bring it to life. And so many of those moons have to line up for anything to you know, to just get to air someplace, much less, you know, succeed. So, but there is something kind of just crazy organic about it. And it's hard to, it's hard to reproduce. And so in that regard, and he said this, you know, they're, they were, they were lucky to have the opportunity. They, and they, they really did a hell of a lot with it. I mean, what, six, seven seasons and great careers for all of them. And, and, mm-hmm. and, and now a movie. Um, that the Yeah. Movie I'm excited Paramount to, Plus. yeah, yeah. Excited to hear about that and excited to, to see it when it finally comes out. Sounds like yeah. it's um, either COVID era or post COVID one or the other. Yeah. And the thing I think we didn't get to talk to him about, which I'm really curious about is, you know, what are those guys like? What, I don't know. It's, it's, what are we, we must be six, seven years out, right. At this point from the last workaholics episode. And, you know, like maybe, you more. Know, like, maybe more, like, where are they? And they're, you know, they're not post you know, grads. I, I wonder we'll, how they will pick up the story. I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And where those guys are in their life. That'll be that'll be interesting. We'll have to wait and find out. We will, and hopefully you'll come back and uh, find out about our next guest next week and uh, join us on Basic. Thanks for coming. Basic is a Pantheon Media production in partnership with Sirius XM, hosted by Jen Cheney and Doug Herzog, produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli. Lindley Ehrlich is our assistant producer. Sound design and music by Jerry Danielson. Mixed and mastered by Brian Slusher. Recorded and edited by Zach Spisner. You can find Basic on Apple Podcasts, the SiriusXM app, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If you like the show, please rate, review, and share so other people can find us. Don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.